Hello and welcome to episode eight, I believe. Yes, episode eight of Performing the Arts of season two. My name, as always, is Brian M. Davis, and joining me today is a is a guy I worked with more than a few times already. He's also a former director of Mind. He is a great guy in general. All right, I'll introduce myself. I, yeah. I am, my name is Joe Danazi. I'm a professional producer, director, actor, voiceover artist, stage combat choreographer, teacher, etc., etc. Um, made a, I've made been blessed enough to have make a hundred percent of my living in theater and in the performing arts for the past four and a half years, which was great up until the quarantine. Yes, uh, <laughs> it has been one. <sighs> one messed up year for us as performing arts, especially those who are graduating from college and going into performing arts field and finding out there are no jobs available until probably next year or probably. Probably. So yeah, uh, I know you talked about this in the past, especially uh, with my castmates to buy, but to those who don't know you personally, how did you get into the performing arts? Oh, I mean, basically the same way as anybody. Um, I was a bit young. Um, I, uh, I've always enjoyed entertainment and I had something of a knack for memorizing lines. I actually have Monty Python's Flying Circus to thank for that because where mm. many nerds memorize individual sketches, I memorized entire episodes. Uh, <laughs> some, people were, some people always told me, you should get into this. You should do, you should act. And, uh, in college, um, long story short, I got sick in high school and didn't have a normal high school. I got uh, special pre uh, tutoring at home because I was ill, and uh, they ended up putting me in uh, in night classes with the kids who threw chairs at their student at their uh, teachers. Um, so I I had to get into a community college, and I didn't have the normal high school formative uh you know drama club but also i didn't have any of the like actual career preparation classes either so i got yeah. to college with absolutely no idea what to do and so i tried a little bit of everything including an, uh, an acting class and yada 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 here we are 15 years later and i'm a professional um <laughs> I, I got bit basically yeah, uh, it's sort of like the same thing with me. It's like my high school didn't have like the drama club. They probably did, but I probably didn't know about it. You know, they mine did. I just didn't. I was either uninterested or sick until after high school. Yeah. Uh, how did the? Because I know community colleges that you know their drama departments can be like within a, another department. Was it its own department or was it just like combined with another department or something like that? Oh, I have no idea. I don't know from the, the official designations or what was qualified as to what, but we had a pretty sizable theater, actually, especially for a community college and a very good teacher and several classes. Um, there was acting one, acting two, improv, Chekhovian techniques, um, and they put on productions every year. So I don't know what the division of the uh, education was, but it was enough for me to, because it was a two-year community college, mostly known for nursing. And Ooh, okay. yeah, and I just happened to get into the liberal arts uh, side of things just as a way of testing out a little bit of everything. And uh, from there, I yeah. knew enough to want to get a transfer to a four year school. I went to Purchase, which is a pretty well known uh, acting college, um, one of the best arts programs in the SUNY system. 
so I was so I managed to leverage uh, <laughs> getting my GED in high school two and a half years before they would have allowed I would have graduated graduated normally, which they don't even let you do anymore. Because um, when I because when I was sick, I ended up just. I got my GED early, and then from there, the only thing I could get into was the local community college, which I did, but I leveraged that to a four-year bachelor's in near New York City, which was one of the best things that could have been done for me. From there, after I graduated, um, I, ups, uh, I lived upstate at the time. I couldn't afford to move in the city. So I auditioned for one of the only uh, acting opportunities or performance opportunities you could get in upstate, out-of-city area in New York, well, upstate, a lot of people listening to this, it's uh, Orange County, like two hours away from the city. It's upstate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, lived, I lived there. It's upstate. Uh, uh, but uh, I auditioned for one of the only things that I could find, the New York Renaissance Fair, which I had yeah. been a fan of. I had gone a couple of times. I wasn't like a Rennie or anything. I went a couple of times, but it was entertaining enough and fun. And I figured, why not? It's, uh, I can flex my acting chops, even if it just helps me stay in shape until I can move to the city. That'll be good. Um, so I originally auditioned because I couldn't move to the city yet. My second year, I put off moving to the city so that I could commute more, more readily. Um, my third year, I started figuring out how to carpool from the city. And I have been a performer at the Renaissance Fair, a a core, uh, one of their choreographers, one of their fight directors, as well as a director of one of their casts, and I just had my tenth year last year. Amazing. So yeah, I've been. I found something of a home there, and it allowed me to lever to stay connected in the performing arts community to the point where I am able to. It's it's certainly helped me with my New York City career as well. Now tell me a bit about Ren Faire because uh, I've seen clips of it like randomly on YouTube be like, oh, Ren Faire, you know, people be dressed as, you know, medieval stuff. I've asked you stuff in the past about. Uh, medieval was a full 300 years earlier, sir. <laughs> oh, so re Renaissance, I mean. <laughs> right. Renaissance, I forgot, it, it's Ren Faire. It's in the name, Ren Faire, Renaissance Faire. Yes, Renaissance from the medieval. Um, I don't. I don't know why I always get that confused, but yeah, a lot of people uh, do. But there's jousting because there's jousting and swords, and it's it's sort of a yeah. similar perspective in people's idea of what history is. Um, well, what do you want to know? I mean, because Lord knows I could talk a lot about it. Uh, you mentioned that you got it through just like a like the only acting gig they could possibly find there was essentially at the run fair and now that since you're working there for at least you know over a decade now it's like how was like the first couple of years like was the first couple of years almost like the growing pains where it's like you kind of getting used to the run fair stuff and now it's like oh sure you, i mean i had a i had a knack for it i and i i actually won an award my first year but uh, it was still very much, you know, paying my dues. The way the Renaissance Fair works largely is it's, it's an enormous cast. It's usually one to 200 people. And wow. yeah, and well, it's a 35 acres uh, stage yeah. to cover. Um, and that's not counting the independent acts and the people who uh, uh, work for booths. And so this is just, just the in-house cast. Um, it's divided up into separate segments, basically, depending on what you're 
personal specialization is. Um, my first few years, I was a member of the Village Cast, which is basically hmm. your in-house, we live here uh, cast. I, I like to think of it as like the opening scene of A Christmas Carol, when you're just walking the streets and there are like people oh, okay. pails of water out of windows and things like that. That's the, the Village Cast are, generally speaking, the pure improviser. Um, and, and a lot of this is going to be wild generalization, but if I'm going to talk about each cast, but, um, <laughs> the, uh, they are, their job is basically the immersion They're the, to interact with people on a day-to-day -day basis. Cause that's what most of the job at the Renaissance fair is. Uh, even if you are a member of a scripted cast or have scenes or other responsibilities, most of what you do is just walking around all day long in character. Hmm. interacting with people there and making them think they have been transported 500, 400 years in the past. Um, so the uh, majority of what everyone does is that. The dedicated cast just for that are the village there, the butchers, the bakers, the candlestick makers, the, um, the and we usually don't actually do those things, but um, they're the ambient characters. Um, my partner Darian is, uh, has been their director for the past couple of years. can't say oh, is, nice. we canceled because of COVID, but, you know, yeah. um, has been. Um, and she also is probably one of the most infamous characters as well in the village. She plays a Puritan. Um, that has to be fun, especially, uh, it being the Renaissance Fair and like, her character being a, a Puritan, so I was like, he had he that. He in religious satire, something that we have learned. <laughs> that, something that we have learned is that you don't end up either going to or working at a Renaissance fair unless you have a Bible-thumping Westboro Baptist church type person in your family. So yeah. she works a lot of catharsis out. She's insanely, insanely popular, and she's been their director for the past uh, few years. Um, that's where I spent my first couple of years. Uh, I played a couple of characters that were a little non-traditional, but fun. My first character was Sir Henry the Confused, who was a mild-mannered potato farmer who got kicked in the head by his mule and woke up Aww. thinking it was a night on the Crusades. So he thought it was a medieval fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, I spent all day charging around in Invisible Saracens. It was fun. Um, totally insane. Introduced himself as a different superlative every single time he introduced himself. I was sure. Sir Henry the Chivalrous, Sir Henry the Brave, Sir Henry the... <laughs> Actual character name is The Confused. Um, that was my first year. Insanely, insanely fun. My second year, I played a historical character, Christopher Marlowe. Ooh, uh, interesting. Yeah, the man who invented blank verse and was insanely jealous of Shakespeare for making it popular. Uh, he's the one who wrote Faustus, the... Uh, yeah, um, your uh, uh, theater historians will know who he is, but most people didn't. So I would go to literally everybody and say, who's your favorite playwright? And everyone would say Shakespeare and I'd get angry about it. Um, <laughs> that was my second year. My third year, I played Narcissus Flattery, Mirror Maker, and <laughs> Wild Pedant. Uh, <laughs> would go around complimenting absolutely everybody, but mostly me. Also coated my costume head to toe in mirrors and in the outdoor sun in July and August would shine up like a disco ball. Um, so those were where I spent my first three years as a member of the village. Um, I also became their assistant director towards uh, the, in my third year. Um, my fourth year, I got uh, put in a different cast. 
Um, and there are lots of casts at the Renaissance Fair. Uh, there are, there are, for example, the fairies who are largely nonverbal characters who interact largely through sign language and uh, mostly through children. They're invisible. You can't oh, wow. see them. Yeah, you cannot see them. You cannot hear them. You can only interact with them if you're a child. Um, mm. They're fantastic. I've never been in that cast. Uh, then there are other casts uh, that I can, there's also the pub crawl, another one that I've never been in, which is a pub crawl, and they are bawdy and ridiculous and outrageous and over the top and sometimes R-rated. And um, they're, a, they're a cast that you have to literally pay to interact with. There are like four pub crawls during the day. Um, good friend of mine is their director. Uh, they're a blast and absolutely insane. At our Renaissance Fair, they're a colony of lepers. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now when they're, they're insanely, insanely fun. Now, in terms of these different casts, I, yeah. and you mentioned that a lot of impro impro uh, a lot of improv has gone with that. Uh, yes. Is mostly it, is there a script that you have to memorize, or is it just well? Most... That's what I'm getting. Well, that's what I was getting into. In my fourth year, I got oh, put okay. into, uh, in, I got put into basically the headline cast, which is the Robin Hood scenario. And they oh. are a scripted cast. Um, many of the other uh, casts have scripts. I'll get to them as I tell, tell you what I did each year. Um, my, my fourth year, I played Will Scarlet. And um, that was when I had really begun to uh, uh, dive into my education in stage combat. And so uh, they have many scenes, through, scripted scenes throughout the day. They also have... Um, our two like headline shows are the first of which is The Joust. They're a separate company. They have horses. Um, and then there is the Living Chessboard, which is our stunt show, our stage combat show. It's a half hour uh, tied into the script that goes in throughout the day. So if you want to follow the show, you will have plot development. But also, if you just want to see some fun fights, you can go see the fun fights. Um, ah. That was my fourth year as Will Scarlet. Um, my fifth year was my first year as the character that I still play to this day, Sir Francis Drake. Um, who is an actual historical character, real life superhero, the first man to ever sail all the way around the world and live. Magellan gets all the credit, but he died in the Philippines. Um, <laughs> uh, Francis Drake is the first one who actually completed the journey. Um, and uh, my fifth year was my first year in the court of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and we do have a historical element and Queen Elizabeth I was, is our monarch. Um, she's the other headliner. It's the Robin Hood scenario and the queen that get put on all the posters and tickets. Um, ah, okay. Now, the, that's, that cast is less scripted and more... It's sort of a fusion between the ambience of the village and the uh, historical intrigue of uh, the Robin Hood scenario with less scripting generally. There's sometimes some. Um, depends on the year. Uh, but they are the the nobles. It's Queen Elizabeth and her court. Sometimes there's some several foreign ambassadors and knights of Queen Elizabeth's court, all of which are historical figures, like you can Wikipedia them and Google them and look them up. And uh, I played Sir Francis Drake. He's a privateer and knight. Privateer is a fancy word for pirate who doesn't pirate his own people. Um, bane of the Spanish. Uh, when the Spanish Armada invaded England, uh, Francis Drake is the one that basically burned every single uh, ship. Um, incredibly, incredibly important in the New World in terms of politics and founding colonies and 
an advocate for the rights of indigenous people and he's an absolute superhero very cool interacting in the court is basically like going up to a random person and uh telling them the the sort of tutors-esque intrigue right if you're a fan of any kind of like historical fiction shows um the great or um downton abbey or things like that it's very much that going up to people and saying do you see that you know who that is that's sir robert dudley so Robert Dudley and the Queen are very, very close, very close indeed. Uh, oh no, she, she, not nothing like that. No, 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 no. nothing like that whatsoever. Uh, but that's he's her master of horse. She can't be seen being too friendly with him in public because you know she's the Queen and she has to marry somebody in Europe. Who will we don't know? But uh, he is her master of horse, and you know what the um. The queen is very fond of um, riding. Anyway, <laughs> so it's very much that sort of like double entendre banter and also setting just enough in people's heads for them to want to look up who are these people. Um, ah. And learning, oh my goodness, there was so much scandal. She may have been sleeping with Dudley, except she couldn't. She never married anyone until the day she died as a way of it. So yeah, that's what the court is like. Um, my sixth year, um, that's also when I started becoming a fight choreographer for the fair in addition to just fighting. Um, my sixth which, year. Which I'll get to in a little while because right. I, I, I do want to know how not only is a fight choreographer for the REM Fair, would that allowing, you know, not only does that allow you to essentially maybe go over the entire REM Fair, it's like, uh, you know, you know, you know, this group has a little, a little fight, that sort of thing, this group has a little fight, so it's like, but just a fight choreographer in general because stage combat is so weird because hmm. especially when i was talking to francis a couple nights ago he you know he mentions that oh yeah you know he he has legitimate you know you know uh uh stuff in martial arts you know well not martial yeah. arts but you know he's a legitimate fighter so it, it we'll, also brings... we'll get to the differences between stage combat and martial arts but yeah so well, my sixth year was my it was when I first started becoming a choreographer. Then, I mean, we will get into all that, but that's also when I became a member of um, the pirate scenario, which is what I am currently the director of. Uh, I wasn't then, but that's our newest scenario. That's something of a fusion of a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of ambient improv and a little bit of scripted scenes and a little bit of stage combat and also music. Um, because there are also sub-subcasts smaller than that. There's like a, a magicals group and a dance core and so on and so forth. Ah. But the, the pirate scenario is so, lot, some body fun like you see in the pub crawl and some stage combat like you'll see over at the Robin Hood scenario and some music like you'll see in these musical groups that you see over here and some scripted scenes but not as much. And um, it's very much the sort of jack-of-all-trades. And I continued playing Francis Drake, but I wasn't directly at the Queen's side anymore. Hmm. Um, it's like, yes, Drake, go and do all these things. So that's when we became uh, there. And I have been a member of the that scenario for a few years now. That first year, I was sort of technically in the village, but also a pirate character and tangentially attached. Um, and uh, for the past couple of years, I've been their director. So, um, well, first uh, assistant director for a year or two and choreographer. And this past year was my first year as the director. This is the second year, but we're not doing it this year. So I guess I've got um so yeah that's basically what uh, i do at the fair and that's how the fair functions 
Uh, in terms of playing Sir Francis Drake and yeah. also Sir Henry, the clumsy or the knight or that sort of thing, uh, is it oh. fun? Huh? Never mind. I'm continuing. Okay. Uh, in terms of playing historical characters or fictional characters at the run fair, which feels a lot more fun to do? The more historically accurate type of characters, characters or the people who are fictional and you're able to build up the backstory just beyond what you were given? Well, that's a good, that's a really good question. It's, it depends. It depends on your personal person uh, perspective. This is something that Darian talks about having been, uh, you know, the director and character uh, uh, consultant and uh, for the village, because villager characters, unless you go out of your way to do one, like I did with uh, Christopher Marlowe, they're not historical figures. They're entirely, you're a candle maker, go. And from there, it does give you an incredible amount of freedom to, um, fill in the gaps and just be whatever you want to be first rule of improv right yes and your actor's superpower is the ability to say whatever is true is true especially in the improv context so uh that gives you an incredible amount of freedom and you can't say anything wrong unless you're actively negating somebody else's character choices or the scenario or whatever you literally if you say it sure and that's a lot of fun Ahistorical characters also tend to be the more filthy, dirty peasants because the important people are the ones we wrote about. So um, being able to just be a town beggar and roll around on the, on the ground is, costume department will hate you, but uh, the uh, audience will love it. That's a lot of fun. I've done that a lot. I've also, for the past couple of years, been a, a, histor been a historical character, and that is also a lot of fun because you can't all, especially if you're more of an academic actor, you can do lots of character and Drake, God knows there were so many books written about him. Yeah. Um, and the fact is on charted because of, you know, uh, Nathan Drake right. and that sort of thing. How and, many historical characters have a video game franchise based on their lives? Um, that isn't Assassin's Creed, you know? Well, even then it's usually an amalgam and it's like you see this yeah. person, Da Vinci's here and yeah, this is just based on one person's yeah. Francis Drake is one of the biggest superheroes in history. I'll talk about him all day, but as far as playing historical figure, that does give you lots of food and uh, you know research for the actor. It can be a little limiting because you have to be able to play who this person was. Like as Drake, uh, something I've struggled with as Francis Drake is that people will sometimes want to, I, I can play a very brash and obnoxious character and people's reaction to that wants to be, oh fuck, Drake is here. <laughs> oh God, it's him again. But historically he was, one of England's greatest heroes. People adored him. So what I have to balance then is playing the obsequious, obnoxious character that I'm good at versus not being disliked because Drake was adored. So that's a challenge for me. And uh, playing a historical character can sometimes feel like you're in a bit of a box. Conversely, playing an ahistorical character, you have so many choices, you almost don't know what to do with it. So... It really depends on the actor. They both have their appeal. Um, the court tends to do the more historical figures and you have lots of research you can base on. The village tends to be a little bit more open form. Neither one is better. It just depends on what you personally respond to. Okay. Uh, now, picking up on your fight choreography and how yeah. you mentioned that you have been a fight choreographer for the run fair for the past, you know, more than the past few years. Uh, 
how did that come about, you coming into stage combat? Well, um, stage combat isn't something I specifically studied in school. Um, I was dimly aware of it. I took a workshop or two. It was cool, but I was primarily a dedicated actor. And <laughs> um, actually, through the Renaissance Fair, being the Renaissance Fair is like the mecca of stage combat, especially the New York Renaissance Fair. We have a reputation for having some of the best stunt shows in the country. And working there for a couple of years, I met people who were into this. And from there, I was like, oh, I've got a class coming up. And um, I took uh, the occasional classes. And there was a friend of mine who was running not true classes because he wasn't a teacher, but like communal workshops. And we would get together at um, uh, the Brooklyn Lyceum and just fight. And here's what I, and we'd all just sort of share each other's. Uh, in hindsight, I don't advise doing that. <laughs> it worked for me, but it's always better to have somebody who knows what they're doing because I had to unlearn so many bad habits that I learned there. Um, but he, uh, the guy who was running that, put me in touch with who would become my fight master, J. David Brimmer, who has been a fight choreographer and teacher uh, for many, many years now and worked on Broadway and on um, at, and teaches at NYU. And he's done, he was also actually a choreographer at the Renaissance Fair many years ago. Um, <laughs> And uh, from there, I started taking private classes and started getting my certifications up. Um, and of course, continuing to act at the Renaissance Fair was a great place for me to practice that. I auditioned for the Fight Corps and I didn't get it my first year. <laughs> I did not get into, I wasn't good enough to get into Fight Corps my first year, um, but I kept at it, kept studying, became, um, continued working with, uh, with my Fight Master. And eventually I just sort of hung around enough and he took a shine with me that I became his assistant. Hmm. Um, one of several of his assistants. He has sort of like a, a, a personal stable uh, oh, wow. of, <laughs> of assistants. Well, when you're when you're a name, um, <laughs> but I continue. I kept at it. I kept working. I started assisting his classes at NYU and at other private places. And uh, as I kept working, continued developing the skill. My next year, I did get into the fight corps at the Renaissance Fair. They put me on the, that was my Will Scarlet year. Um, that was when I uh, my feet hit the chessboard for the first time. And I continued working um, both at the fair and off the fair. My skills kept developing. And um, I eventually became the senior assistant to my fight master. And sort of he put me in charge of the other assistants. Um, and uh, it was really just a question of, you know, finding a skill that I was good at and that I took a shine to and keeping at it. Uh, tell me about the human chessboard uh, mm. thing. Uh, because the way I'm seeing it is sort of like how in Harry Potter, you know, they have the human thing. It's like, oh, it's like you you, you place yourself on the chessboard. But I, I'm seeing it more as like, oh, there's like a chessboard, but it's like all these people, you know, I mean, the, the pawns are like maybe represented as soldiers. You know, the king is probably like the captain, the guard. That's You're already thinking. thinking harder than it needs to be thought of. The chess <laughs> is really just a conceit for the stage combat. Functionally, yes, the conceit of the game is... It's just like regular chess, except for one big difference. When one piece takes another piece, this piece doesn't automatically get the square. You have to fight for it. And that adds a layer of strategy, but realistically, it doesn't matter. It's, um, we take the scenario of the day, the script inevitably puts the Sheriff of Nottingham and, the, uh, and Robin Hood or the Queen and her latest suitor or something, depending on what the story is that day or that year, I should say. Um, and inevitably, let's have a competition. Um, the tax 
box is over here. Or if you win, then I will, uh, and then I will let you, I will accept your court, your uh, hand in marriage. And if you lose, then you're expelled from the realm or something like that. And we divide them up. The sheriff's men on one side, Robin Hood's men on the other, occasional knights or villagers or whoever happens to have the stage combat skill in the cast that year thrown in amongst them and go. Um, and yeah, it's a stunt show. It's a half hour long fight show, um, light on script, just enough to keep the energy moving and give there some sort of conclusion at the end. And uh, at the end, inevitably, the Sheriff Nottingham is slain or, uh, or banished or sentenced to community service, which happened last year. Um, and uh, yeah, that's basically it. Uh, in Renfair, is it like a character, uh, do you have like a jail that's like kind of like an like a public jail that's kind of like open where people can actually look to see if there's anybody there because I like I, I, I we have stocks like, yeah because I was gonna say do you have like people in stocks where it's like please help me that's what I think oh, yes. but it is primarily for the audience it's primarily a photo op actually but we've been known <laughs> oh, okay. to it on occasion we've been known to uh uh but yes, <laughs> we've used it in certain scenes. I know Darian has, Darian's Puritan has done some scenes there. Um, but it's, it's mostly for the audience. It's not so much a set. So it's more like a follow up and like, ah, yeah. like that. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so yeah, picking up on being a fight choreographer, mm. uh, you have worked in theaters, like more or less theater, because I know you worked in Broadway uh, doing at least two Broadway shows. Yep. Um, don't, don't, hang on, I got it. It's, um, Be More Chill and The Hangman, right? Hangman, yes. Yeah. Uh, how... I worked on, my fight master was the fight, was officially the fight, the fight director on those, but I was his assistant. Um, uh, how did you, uh, because the way Broadway is, especially since, you know, big Broadway shows, you know, they tend to be more... I want to say spectacle in terms of like their fighting as opposed to, yes. uh, you know, off Broadway theater, which is essentially much like when they have a fight on stage, it feels a lot more, I don't want to say dirtier, but a lot more rural where it just feels a lot more, there's a lot more passion to the fight, you know, on stage as well, opposed I'll tell to- you, as, Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. No problem. Go, well, yeah, go ahead. I, I, well, yes, in that experience, Broadway is a little more Renfair. Um, because the Renaissance Fair, generally speaking, aren't huge stakes. People don't, you know, you're not going to have like strangulations and, you know, uh, bones being broken and blood spewing all <laughs> over the stage. At the Renaissance Fair, it is much more high energy spectacle. And um, of the two Broadway shows that I have worked on, Be More Chill was a very fun, upbeat musical. And in that regard, the fights were very much that. They don't have to be super realistic. It was sort of video game inspired and a little more, uh, you know, a little more loose and comedic. Hangman, yeah. on the other hand, is a little more brutal. Um, yeah. Hangman, uh, and Hangman was uh, a lot more shocking, a lot more visceral, but it also got start off Broadway. Um, well, be more chilled it as well, I guess. But it's still, it's a different style of show. The big difference yeah. with stage combat on Broadway is the house is huge. And yeah. you have to make sure that your moves read not just to the person sitting down stage center, but also the one all the way up in the third balcony. Um, so in that regard, uh, awareness of tone is essential in stage combat. Um, yeah. And awareness of your spacing as well, what you're trying to accomplish. But that's how you work with the other creatives. 
Um, I, a lot of my stage combat experience is in smaller shows, of course, and there you just have to work with the director. But in Broadway shows, you've got 15 people sitting around the room after rehearsal is let out, and you have to make sure that your vision aligns with all of them and the costuming is happy and we're not going to stain this clothing and the set. No, you can't bang up into this piece because it's not built that way. Okay, great. So it's a lot more being a member of a, of a collaborative team yeah. in bigger shows. Yeah. Uh, and you all have to be on the same page as to exactly what your tone that you're going for in that moment is. Yeah, uh, I know with Hangman, the, the playwright, Martin, Mc, uh, Martin McDonald. McDonald. I, I know his plays are very, very, I don't want to say depressing, but they're, it has that style, a style of like, it's very depressing to read, but at the same time, they're hilarious. So it's like, it, it, like it blurs, black yeah. Yeah, the black, it blurs line between uh, comedy and drama, but it leans toward like, like black comedy. Uh, in terms of Hangman, and in, because I know, you know, it, this was one of the first shows to unfortunately close because of, you know, coronavirus. It was the first show. It was the first show to announce that it would not be returning after the quarantine, and it never even officially opened. It had been in previews for, I think, two weeks. Yeah. I didn't even get a chance to see it with an audience. Which I did is... last time. I've, I've actually worked on that show twice. The first time I worked on it was when it was at the Atlantic, and I did see it with an audience then, but I was looking forward to seeing it in the Broadway house. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of that type of fighting, uh, you, because you mentioned that, you know, Pima Chill has much more of the fighting. Was, it was much more akin to, like, oh, much like playing a video game, that sort of thing. As, you know, with Hangman, with uh, Martin's way of writing, he is a lot more, I want to say, shocking in terms of like he, how he portrays his sense of violence. In terms of actually producing that on stage, were there essentially concerns about, hey, let's not try and do it for the sake of, you know, sake of shocking, whereas it's like, oh, this is just very shocking. You know? Well, the first rule of comedy is it's never funny to the characters your experiences have to be played completely straight. And in that regard, choreographing the stage combat of it was actually very easy uh, yes. because you could just go completely brutal. Martin McDonough's brilliance in his writing is that he can, he can very effectively contrast what we're seeing with what we're hearing. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm also a producer. I produce a comedy show. You've been in it. Uh, yes. And uh, comedy, I, is, I feel strongest when played straight. But comedy, I mean, there's a little, also been a lot of studies of what is comedy. Comedy, I feel, is a violation of expectations. When you expect one thing and don't get it, you get something else. Yes. And that is kind of where, so in that regard, one of the most effective things we could do as the choreographers on that show was to choreograph it completely seriously and then allow the absurdity of the situation to speak for itself. Um, for example, the opening scene of Hangman, I won't spoil too much, uh, but the opening scene of Hangman is a hanging, but it's a hanging in a jail, and this kid is being dragged to the gallows, and the whole time he's protesting his innocence in a really kind of absurd way, and the whole time he's like clinging to his bed, trying desperately to get the, uh, uh, to get, uh, to, save his own life it's a terrifying moment he's about to be killed and he's screaming about the the unfairness of it all nothing about this sounds funny 
But the absurdity and the things that he's focusing on while the guards are literally trying to pry his hands off and like struggling with him, he's kicking at them. He's like correcting people's grammar. And, it's, and and like like one of the uh, one of the guards is saying you if if you just stop struggling you'd be dead by you'd be dead by now it's it's, it's like, why would I want that why would I want to stop struggling he's actually got a point of course he's got whose side are you on and uh no the the exact line I believe is um oh no dang it's been a little while since uh, since I saw the show unfortunately but. It, it's like I, uh, he corrects somebody's pronunciation of hung. It's like you, you, I'm, uh, I'm being hung. That's the line. I'm being hung by nincompoops, and somebody else says hanged. What? Hanged. You're being hanged by nincompoops. Correcting my English at a time like this? Are you kidding me? So in the so in that regard, the more physically strenuous we could make the scene without being too distracting, of course, um, contrasting with the language really pulls is. I think the the essence of black comedy. There is nothing funny about the situation, but yes. it's hilarious. <laughs> and because, because the way black comedy works is that oh, there is nothing There's nothing funny about the situation, but the, the but it's the assurity of what's happening that yeah. is the funny part. Because you know, you mentioned my Python before, and Monty Python has great black comedy in terms of the type of stuff they do. You know, what I was raised on. Yeah, the, the parrot sketch, you know, the guy comes into the, you know, the famous parrot sketch, you know, he comes into the things, you know, clearly a dead bird, you know, the, the cashier's not buying it. And at one point he go he actually just smacking the bird on the, on the thing, you know, and you're laughing at that because, you know, he obviously is a fake bird because, you know, it's a, it's, it's yeah, but that's not the point. The yeah, point is more look but, at the ridiculous length that this guy is going to, to try and save face for making a bad sale. Yes. And anybody and the more they continue to talk about it the more ridiculous it gets and that's what i you expect him to say oh dear i sold you a bad a bad bird and or saw yes. off but no he's just continuing to deny the patently obvious in front of everybody yes and i i think when you when the character is that oblivious or mm. just that you know oh he wasn't oblivious he was yeah, well, and he like, in his face michael palin's brilliant performance in that sketch and he's He's like obviously pain. He's like he's got me dead to rights, but it's stunned. Please believe me. <laughs> you know? He's he knows he's screwed, but it's a commentary on on how you know the uh, uh, many retail stores will do absolutely anything to avoid losing their bottom line. It's a rep I've, I've got a reputation to uphold here, mate. I yeah. I the, the bur and he ends up sending. Um, a lot of people remember the sketch. They don't necessarily remember the payoff. He finally says, okay go to this other shop and get a refund. And he ends up sending him in a roundabout way to the same shop. He's still <laughs> just trying to deflect. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm getting yeah. off topic, but yes. Yeah, it's okay to get off topic since it's my show. It's like, and yeah. we, get, we get into long, uh, long tractions, that's off topic, that sort of thing. And it's a very casual show, so I don't mind it. Well, good. Uh, but yeah, black comedy, especially on stage, is hilarious when it's like essentially done right. But when it's comedy for the sake of comedy, that's when it feels like that's when it feels like it just falls flat. You know, if you're <laughs> trying to convince me that you're being funny, you're not being funny. The second you yeah. have effort at being funny, you're not being funny. That uh, can work in like over the top cartoonish absurdity 
zany madcap I am being funny for a reason, but it, even then you still have to do it skillfully. Yeah. Uh, it's like, it's weird because, you know, one of the shows I was ushering for uh, last, uh, well, last fall, it was written by a guy, Tracy Letts, and oh, yes. yes, and I think you know what show I'm referring to because it was like ooh, right down the block from where you know our show would be, and it's like it's not necessarily that, but and you know night after, you know night after night, it'd be like, I've been listening to a lot of this comedy, and a lot of comedy would just be like so it would fall flat. But for a certain audience, it, it would be hilarious because, it, you know, people in their 50s and 60s would be laughing because it's like, oh, you know, that sort of thing. You know, and here's me in my 30s. Like, really, like I know, like, some of the jokes they're talking about. Like, oh, I know, you know, I know who Steely Jane is. Like, I, I know that's where, like, I know who they are. It's like, but then they would go, like, like, stuff like, there was this, like, weird joke about someone looking like someone from Convoy. And I'm like, the hell's convoy and it, you know in my back of my mind i'm just like convoy convoy and it's like oh it's that strong it's like oh we got a convoy here that's sort of thing it's like so i'm uh, like i'm referring back to the song uh, and and in turn it reminds me of oh there was this movie called convoy hence where it came from but yeah i think in terms of comedy the comedy has to stick to the people who know what you know what's funny the most and playing yeah and to me, I, I'm a very physical comedian, so it's like, I, like you see me take falls on stage. Like I really take falls on stage. Like I, I will just like take out, like take a bump on stage. It's like no, don't do that. As yeah. a fight choreographer, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's like there are ways to yeah. safely for God's sake. But yeah, uh, which we'll actually get into in a couple seconds. But yeah, in terms of playing comedy, in terms of physicality, and just black comedy in general. It's like you have to know your audience, and yes. you know when most of the people who were in that crowd were in their fifties and sixties, like they knew the jokes. But people who were probably younger, and I've seen like you know younger people in the audience, they wouldn't be laughing because they wouldn't know the jokes. So yeah, it's it's odd how essentially a, a show like that could be like oh a laugh writer for a certain audience, but when it's like a much more younger crowd, it's like weird. So well, I've yeah. also learned that reaction you can't necessarily gauge everything on an audience's reaction. Audiences, uh, are, audience reactions are surprisingly fallible, imperfect measure of whether or not something is being successful or not. Um, yeah. It's one of my favorite things to say. Only 40% of all laughter has anything to do with how funny somebody thinks something is. Like so, sociologists have done studies on this. Most of it is reactive. Because um, laughter is another one of the, like, there have been lots of studies of comedy, but there's also a lot of been studies on laughter. What the hell is laughter? Why do we go ha when we think something is funny? And what biologists and sociologists think is that it is a way of communicating to the rest of the herd that something is not funny, but that there is no danger. That we personally are safe. It is a, like a meerkat call to the rest of the people nearby that something is safe right now. Like similar yeah. to yawning. When you yawn, everyone is coming, and that's why yawns are contagious. That's why laughter is contagious also. It's a herd activity. And so that's also why you will laugh in an uncomfortable situation. Um, because, yeah, what is uncomfortable laughter? I don't think something's funny, but I'm laughing. Because you are a communicating that you are not actively in danger. You might be yes. uncomfortable, but I'm not actively in danger. And so what that means in a 
comedy show context is that you will only laugh if you feel like you're supposed to from the other people in the room. Not even yeah. the people on stage, but from the person sitting right next to me. If she doesn't laugh, I might not laugh. I might think it's hilarious, but I might not laugh. Yes. And that's why laugh tracks are a thing on television. And that's why the first a couple of lines in any show is essential. That's, you got to make sure that you have to let the audience know it's okay to laugh. So I hear what you're saying, and I agree completely. Yeah. You have to make sure that your audience understand you are playing the comedy for the audience you have in the room. But I'm also going to caution you to not necessarily think that an, a non-responsive audience is an audience that isn't enjoying it. They very yeah. frequently, very frequently, I find the exact opposite. People will be dead silent. And then they'll come to you afterwards. They'll say, that was hilarious. That was fantastic. Here's my contact information. Here's my agent. And start giving you all these things that are obviously not just being polite. And then some people will laugh their faces off because they felt like they were supposed to. And afterwards, the show will be like, it was fine. Yeah. Uh, especially, especially, you know, in community college, you know, one of my interesting memories was uh, coming after, like, one night after playing a character about the Southern Magnificent Prince of Mars. So I'm, you know, I'm dressed like sort of like a Martian, but I, you know, make, I have makeup, all that stuff. I'm, I'm backstage, like, after the show, and there's people coming up who was like, you were hilarious, that sort of thing. And, you know, they would just, like, walk away. And it's like, and then I would have people who I know who would come backstage and see, oh, you know, I had a Han Solo toy blaster, right? Mm -hmm. And... And the funny thing is that my director actually wanted to get uh, a Troy Blaster, you know, for, for the thing, but there wasn't any time. I was like, hey, I have a alien blaster. Just don't worry about it. Come in the thing, and in the moment you see me holding this Han Solo Troy Blaster, everyone knows it's, you know, the you know, Han Solo's gun. So that always gets a big reaction. And me not, you know, using it the right way gets even the, even the more funny reaction. And of course, it's like, I remember like literally getting my makeup, you know, that sort of stuff off. And, you know, one of my friends came in, he goes, hey, Brian, you did great. And then he goes, and he goes straight into, he just wanted to go and actually see the, the, the toy blaster for himself and just let us playing as, and I go, don't play, you know, don't play around with that. It has like a 20 year old battery that still works. So I was like, you know, <laughs> so I just don't want to like, it's a, you know, it's a 20 year old weapon, a 20 year old toy gun that still works. Still has a battery that still works. So I was like, don't drain the battery. And it's like, oh yeah, don't worry. And it just string around just having to play with it. So yeah, uh, it, it's sort of like what you just said like this, like people will love and enjoy your work after the show. And then after the show, people will just be like laughing in front of you and then just like walk away after the show, that sort of thing. So yeah, it, it's, oh, a, I it's mean, a, anytime, anytime you're reacting to an audience, yeah, and that's the eternal. That's why so many actors get so desensitized to the phrase, because how can you believe yeah. it? Everyone says your show is great, and I've done it. You've done it, I'm sure. You've gone yeah. down. That was a fantastic show, and then afterwards, once you're out of the theater, be like, oh my god, did you see that? Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Uh, oh, but yeah, back to uh, the fight choreography because yeah. I actually because uh, uh, they actually. Uh, wanted to relate back to something. Uh, so yeah, this is what came up to, uh, this is what Francis and I were talking about, how essentially how he has a legitimate, you know, fight, uh, you know, he, yeah. legitimately know, he knows legitimately how to fight, that sort of thing. And he says, you know, it, you know, it's hard to, because he's, you know, he's talking about how people who have fight, you know, legitimate fight, you know, that sort of thing, compared to someone who has to learn how to fight on stage, because I've, 
I've only learned how to do skate, stage, stage combat, like at least a couple of times, but that was only like during my community college days where it was like introductory acting, we'll just learn about, you know, stage combat, like once this week and the following week and, you know, figure out how to, you know, create a good scene, that sort of thing. In terms of people who have like actual fight backgrounds, like mm-hmm. mixed martial artists, wrestlers, you know, uh, yep. but, you know, people who, you know, fencing, sword fighting, that sort of thing. How do you tr- help them transition to say, hey, this is what I need you to do on stage, you know, instead of trying to hit them with a, you know, with a, uh, you know, a punch to the jaw, just like do like this, but at the same time, slap your thigh just to make sure it looks like you're actually doing it. So within the same thing, it goes. It's much harder. Much it's harder? much, much harder. I would rather have somebody who has never had a second of physical training whatsoever than try to choreograph an actual martial artist. Every single time. It's much harder. As long as you have any physical awareness whatsoever. Um, that is. Because some people who... Yeah, it's hard to train somebody who doesn't know anything about what they're doing like, in terms of like how their body works. But if you don't, if I'll take, uh, I'll take a dancer, I'll take um, people who played sports as a kid, I'll take people who uh, have at least some general, do yoga, have a general awareness of how their physical instrument works. But if you have actual intense how to fight background, it is much harder to choreograph you. Because your body thinks it knows what it's doing now. Hmm. It is in your muscle memory. Because let's look at what martial arts is. Martial arts, you don't want to have to think. Yes. You want to have your body react before your brain, and even more importantly, your opponent's brain can catch up. Yes, and, it's, you're it's, training it's yourself, and you're training yourself to actually hit people. So even if you can train yourself to not hit that person, your body, number one, is going to make it act and feel like an actual martial art, which is also meant to be invisible and to not show any weakness and to not portray and to not uh, telegraph to your opponents what you're doing. Well, that also includes the audience. So an actual martial artist will tend to just throw a really quick fist and come back to a neutral guard and not act at all because you're not supposed to in competitions. If you get hit, you don't let the judge know you got hit. Yeah. You have to literally unlearn every single thing that your body thinks it knows how to do in order to become an effective stage combatant. And that is Hmm. incredibly hard. Incredibly, incredibly hard. Um, Real, my, my partner's motto, real fighting looks like crap. Yeah. That's why there are trained judges at MMA fights and boxing matches to, because you don't even know. Like you watch a boxing match and you say, that person got hit 56 times in the last round. They did? I didn't see that. Exactly. Uh, if, you're at, if you're fighting on stage, you have to telegraph to the entire audience what is about to happen, what just happened, and then what already happened so that your grandmother who was reading her program will look up and the story will be clear. And you have to show weakness. You have to show weakness and muddiness and be an uncoordinated fighter for the purposes of your story. Yeah. And also I find that martial artists tend to want to win. Mm. You're not trying to win on stage. You're trying to tell a story. And the better story is when you lose. Mm. Or better yet, die. Everyone wants a death scene. Sean Bean's made a career out of it. 
but <laughs> martial artists want to be in control. I'm generalizing. Of course, there are good martial arts, uh, people who have martial arts experience with stage, who are brilliant stage combatants. And when you become an expert at both, worlds open up. You can say, well, I know how to do this in Jeet Kune Do, therefore, I can know how to adjust that to make it look good on stage. But until you become master level, or at least competent expert level at both, they fight against each other. If you're a st I've, and the opposite is true. Stage fighters are terrible at real fighting. I'm not a real fighter. <laughs> I'm okay at sword sparring, but I'm, I'm not a real fighter. And I, I, I know friends that have intentionally missed and napped punches in bar fights because it's just in their heads. And they'll say, oh yeah, try something. And then they get punched in the face because they tried to do a fake punch in a bar fight. The physical instrument is one that knows what it's doing and then takes over from there and thinks it continues knowing what it's doing. Those two skills seem, and that's the real problem with this industry a lot of the time, is you'll go to somebody, if you're an unqualified director, and you'll go to somebody and you'll say, you know how to do martial arts, right? Great, you're the fight choreographer for this show. And you're not going to say no, because it's an extra job. Might even have a pay bump in it. Yeah. Then you are choreographing dangerous fights that look terrible and aren't realistic and don't safely take care of your actors or the audience for that matter. And then somebody else sees that and the director sees that and the director goes, this is terrible. And then forever they'll be like, I hate that stage combat shit. <laughs> and then they won't hire somebody who actually knows what they're doing. Stage combat is the redheaded stepchild of theater. It really, really gets no respect whatsoever. It's awful. And a lot of what I do is trying to unlearn, is trying to help other people unlearn that perspective as to why Stage combat, number one, never needs... And first of all, if you're ever an actor in that position, you or anybody else listening, make them hire fight choreographers, please. Make them hire intimacy coordinators. Make them hire people who are qualified to take care of you because you are the only person who's going to be your own advocate. If you ever are putting yourself in a position where you're like, this doesn't feel right, for God's sake, stop doing it. And if you can't afford to hire a fight choreographer or somebody, you can't afford to do the show because that's what it requires. And if they'll say that, well, we can't afford to do that, okay, if I do this and I get hurt, I can sue you. Suddenly they'll find the money. Um, I'll get off my soapbox now, but yeah, my, suffice to say the world of martial arts and the world of stage combat seem like they go together. Of course they do. They really super don't unless Not. you have that training and awareness to know how separate they are. And that's how people get hurt. And that's how you see bad fights on stage a lot of the time. It's very, yeah, it's a very interesting perspective, especially since, you know, fighting on stage, oh, it looks so real, but sometimes it might not look so real on the stage, especially if you're like maybe a couple of feet you know, off the side, just watching it from the from the wings, and just like this is like well, the fifth time they've done it this, this today. It's like it looks so, it, it, like it looks so stiff. That sort of thing. But compared to a normal, I'm not going to always blame the choreographers on that because Lord knows I've worked with some stiff, inflexible actors, and there's only so much you can do about that. But yeah, I agree completely. There's, but yeah, but but compared to a normal person on like maybe. Uh, six rows deep who can't really see the actor on stage it looks it looks memorizing so yeah 
And oh, that's another thing. Yeah, is you have to be aware of your space. You have to be, like I was saying before, in a Broadway house, you have to perform for the third balcony as well as the you know producer in the front row. It's that's something you have to be aware of, and it's hard. Sometimes the cheap seat from the tiny corners all the way front, it, there's only so much you can do about that, but you have to make at least make an effort. And there are advanced technical skills that you can do too. And that's another thing. In stage combat, you sometimes, when you've done a basic stage combat education, they will teach you the basics. They'll teach you how to do this punch and they'll teach you how to do that. And they'll teach you basic stage combat vocabulary. In a show, I don't use any of those. Those are tools. Those are tools they teach you in a class so that you understand the principles of that. And then you have to break all of those rules to create actual convincing choreography. And if you see somebody do those moves in a show, odds are pretty good they're an unqualified choreographer or an unqualified actor if there is a choreographer at all. Um, the thing that gets on my nerves is the whole sitting on your hands and knees and get kicked in the stomach thing. I've seen that 10,000 times. It never looks right. <laughs> um, yeah, you have to be aware of all these things. Uh, in terms and this is also why you get why you get fight court, why you get uh, stage combatants and fighters get a reputation as being a bad actor too, because a lot of the times they'll come from that school of physical martial arts and nothing's happening on their face. That's a separate point. Yeah, uh, but actually, it brings into my next point, which mm. is COVID. And as we said mm. before, COVID has really, really put a like a very bad happenstance on the industry, especially for the next probably more than the next like year or so and we don't know what's going yeah we don't know when the industry is actually going to be uh returning especially for theater that sort of thing at least yeah. you know with uh film tv production that's slower returning in new york city you know phase four kind of reopened and so like new york city is kind of fully reopened for the most part but we don't know like when the, the theaters will actually open up again because broadway league has essentially said hey no more stays during that sort of thing and they're looking until like January to like reopen shows, that sort of thing. It might yep. say, oh, or something like that. Uh, but when you, in terms of fight choreography and also intimacy uh, coordinators, mm -hmm. uh, especially with, <clears throat> especially with shows like West Side Story, which is heavily a fight choreography show, even though it is more, uh, I want to say dance, uh, like a dance fighting, where it's like stylized, but it's still fighting. Yeah, yeah. Something like West Side Story is also a very intimate show because you have people kissing, that sort of thing, like day oh, in yeah. day out. It's like they kiss on stage, that sort of thing. It's like there's a big kiss at the end. Uh, you know, people hold each other, that sort of thing. Uh, These are terms forms in which it is impossible to social distance at all. Yeah. As a, you know, you you touch each other, you sweat on each other. I mean, I was. Yeah, I, I see your point. Uh, yeah. Uh, in terms of that's uh, in terms of both fight choreography and also intimacy uh, choreographers, do you see like shows that have large scale like fight things being scaled back, and especially with shows like West Side Story, where essentially the fight, you know, the two gangs fighting—that's essentially the whole you know thing. It's literally like Romeo and Juliet. You know, they're literally fighting. Oh, I mean, it is Romeo and Juliet. The show, yeah, story it, is Romeo and Juliet. Juliet. And I mean, I, in the no, no, I don't. Um, it's just not possible to tell some of those stories that way. Yeah, I mean, especially uh, West Side Story. It's about gangs. I mean, you can't. I, I don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be possible. We're going to have to go back to, uh, to normal eventually. The question is when and under what circumstances. Hmm. 
But uh, you don't see like uh, shows essentially scaring, uh, scaling back their fight scenes or just fight scenes in general to fit much more of like a social distancing where it's just like long term. Oh, yeah. no, no, I don't. Short term, maybe. Long term, no, absolutely not. Audiences okay. won't stand for it. They'll demand it. Okay. Audiences uh, won't even go into a Walmart without keeping their mask on. They're going to be. They're not going to want things to be smaller. They want it to go back to normal as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, do you see, and, and this brings up to my, uh, this brings up to my point is like, not only, it was like, how would producing shows now work, especially on Broadway, since, you know, people have to be, do, would people still want to produce shows that are essentially just shows to keep, you know, keep people entertained for like two hours or an hour and a half, or maybe even three hours? Or would people just like be careful and I'm just like, yeah, you know, we've done this show in the past, but you know, look at Disney, you know, Frozen, you know, even though it wasn't doing well on you know ticket sales, they closed it down on Broadway because even though it was a you know something of a good seller, it was still closed down. It was still like one of their popular plays. They closed it down because the insurance rules that they would have had to pay unemployment and wages during the close down until the, unless they canceled the show. That's why Hangman was the first show to close. That's what they cited when they oh, uh, okay. were on it. There are, there are union rules about this. I'm shocked. Yeah. Every I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm a little surprised there are any shows that are planning to come back, honestly, just for that reason alone. I wouldn't be surprised if things get restarted again. But until yeah. then, you announce it's closed. To answer your question, no, I don't. I don't think that there's going to be any permanent long-term shape of theater people. Human beings demand normalcy. And for better or for worse, they're going to get it again. I mean, what the audience demands is what fuels ticket sales. And hopefully it will happen safely once we get some semblance of a vaccine or more permanent solution, but yeah. it's going to go back to normal. It's just a question of when and how. When. Uh, in terms of just producing and directing, Especially now with uh, Zoom or YouTube or something to that effect, especially mm -hmm. the web being much more of an open space to do that, uh, I feel like this is a question I've asked so many times on this, on, on this show already, but do you think that uh, web performances will still be a thing even if Broadway and off-Broadway and essentially the theater industry goes back to normal? Um, no, not at all. It's film. Film, sure. I wouldn't be surprised if more people become more, uh, more viable in film, but the economics don't support it. And I wouldn't be surprised if some people do it as like passion, uh, just for the passion and the exploring of the medium, but there is no way to replace an, an audience of laughter. It's yeah. just, it's just not the same, not to mention all the technical problems. And let's talk about this financially. If you're talking about producers, yeah. if you're talking about uh, people who are seeking to make a living on it, Zoom plays are great. I, don't, I, I think that what people have done to keep the stories moving in the Zoom atmosphere is fascinating, artistically, uh, artistically intense, and really speaks to the integrity and the ambition of the human spirit to not let anything stop them from creating stories. Yes. There's no way to make it a viable industry. And I respect people, I do respect people who have done Zoom plays. The passion and want, to, the drive to perform doesn't stop for anybody. But there's no way to make a career on it. Hmm. I mean, at least in theater, there is a wild 2% chance that you might be able to make a career on it. But yeah. 
it's not a permanent replacement. It's it's lightning in the bottle. It's it's lightning in a bottle by necessity. You had to bottle lightning. Um, yeah. <laughs> but no, I don't think there's a future in it. Yeah, it, it's hard to it's hard enough to even do something like this bi-weekly or maybe even just weekly just to put it on like a performance that sort of thing. So even if just look at the capitalism of it. There's no way to monetize it. Yeah. You're never going to bring investors into something to do a Zoom play unless it's by necessity or by gimmick. Yeah. It's, it's, which, is odd, which is odd when you see a lot of these uh, theater companies or at least just people bringing in like high leveled, you know, you know, very popular actors just to do like a, a, a stage reading, well, state, you know, stage reading of something like of a, a very famous film. And even though it would be like a lot of people watching it concurrently as it's live or something like that, it's like you just, you just hear about, eh, like, it was okay. It wasn't like, it wasn't like uh, this performance I saw like, you know, 10 years ago when Patrick Stewart or, you know, Harlan Miller was doing I respect what you can do with the medium. I've seen some people yeah. do really interesting things, especially involving visual effects. And um, yeah, I think it's really, I think a lot of what is really, really cool. I don't think it's something that you can sustain. And to end this point is like what you just said before, theater, you need the audience to engage and react because there are times where it's like if someone is la if the audience is laughing so hard, you have to wait a moment or two to cat you to let them like catch up and just take a breather and then say a line regardless. You know, you need you know, that energy. Yeah, you need that energy. You look, know? look at it this way: when people when when movies were invented, the turn of the twentieth century, right? And people and movie theaters started opening up and becoming big industry. People thought then that theater was going to die out. You can tell stories and bring them straight to people's, you know, homes when, you know, people said the same thing when VHS and DVDs started becoming a thing. You, there's no reason to ever go to the theater anymore. There's no reason even to go to a movie theater anymore, except yes, you do. Because you cannot, you cannot replace the energy of a live performance in a live audience or even, or even just an audience watching a movie all in the same room. That's the communal spirit that human beings need. What is laughter? a way of communicating to everybody else in the room that there is no danger and the relief and joy that that brings because a wildebeest isn't about to trample across your camp. You yeah. need that. You cannot get rid of it completely. People, capitalists have been trying to get rid of it completely for at least 150 years. It will not ever happen. The, the human nature is against it. Yeah, it's... Theater is the one art form that will never die because even if there are theaters that close, there's still the park. There's still outside. There's still some bar with a backstage that's big enough for a stage by itself that, you know, you know it might be used for like the local bands, but given enough space, you know, you could still do uh, a musical there or something. I mean, like that. just because, just because I don't think that Zoom has long-term financial legs as a viable option does Zoom itself is a prime example of that. Yeah, we'll have to all stay in our living rooms. We'll still find a way to all be in a virtual room and enjoy an experience together. It's so central to human need. Trying to pretend that we can live without it, I think, has pretty functionally been disproven. We all bonded yeah. over Tiger King for crying out loud. We couldn't be in the same room, but that was still a shared experience we were capable of having. It's in our DNA. 
It's odd. I never actually have watched that show. So it's like... A, Not the point. Still, yeah, what, yeah, did you see my it's, point? It's, yeah, it's, 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 it, it, yeah, it's odd how essentially over quarantine, you know, something like this feels like like the much needed uh, device to use in order to communicate between one another. But now it's like once quarantine is like fully over and all that stuff, and people are able to actually, and, and people are already now going back out to their daily lives, you know, people have gone to the beaches without their mask on, you know, it's like crowded beaches, they're not really social distancing at the, the beach, that sort of thing. The need for that level of shared intimate human connection is so strong, it is overriding safety and common sense. Yes. And you're going to pretend that we're not going to be back in the full theater with the full fight on stage? No, it has to happen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and same with the things with inter intimate uh, things. It's like, you know, you, can, you know, just because the, the, the play calls for a sex scene doesn't mean that, you know, it's not going to be still safe, but, you know, it's it has to be needed, even though, you know. Oh, I hope and trust that we're going to be able to come up with safe options. But the point yeah. is that it will come back in some form. Hopefully, it will be safe one. But yeah, yeah, uh, you know, as you just said before, it's like you know, in the foreseeable future, there's got to be like some growing pains for that. But oh, like in the foreseeable future, I do see everything going back to normal, with you know, safety precautions. But you know, for the next like once everything goes back to normal, there's still going to be some growing pains. So, but after like say a year or two everything will probably be going back to normal and it's like uh it'll be like and people will probably be still treating those safety precautions as normal but at the same time a lot of these people will probably still treat everything as normal as it was before so yeah uh and i know i think i this is a good point to end my episode <laughs> so i do have three questions left. that's quite easy sure uh one, depending on what, what you're seeing yourself in the foreseeable future, what can we actually see you see you do in the foreseeable future? I know you really want to do an alumni show, which is... Oh, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Well, I mean, unfortunately, my timetable is entirely in waiting for the world to be able to safely open back up again. We did hold a... Um, unfortunately, it was poorly timed. We held a uh, relief charity live stream the Sketch New York Relief Charity live stream to uh, attempt to put some money back in the pockets of those who had been unable to work um, yeah. a couple of months ago. Unfortunately, it happened literally right as stimulus packages were being passed. So everyone was like, eh, they don't need money. Everyone's getting a funding. Well, it's also ending in a week. So maybe we'll see if they don't pass a new stimulus. We may be able to do something like that um, if it is necessary. But beyond that, I'm really just, unfortunately, stuck waiting for the yeah. world to create a condition in which I can safely go back to work, and I have no idea when that is going to be. So at the same time, hopefully a stimulus package gets passed of some kind, but I'm just waiting otherwise. I had successfully managed to get my life and career to the point where I didn't need a survival job and talked about that biting me in the ass. But <laughs> yeah, it, everything just like really bit everybody in the ass, especially... Worked towards a career for over a decade, and then the entire industry vanished. You just... Uh, yeah, I feel like that'd be a different story, but yeah. I mean, different talk. But yeah, that's just me being. Uh, <laughs> but do you have any advice to those who are watching or listening right now? Be safe. Be smart. Keep your head open. No, uh, keep your head up and know that we will be able to return to some semblance of normalcy again. I just hope that it can be done reasonably and safely. But unfortunately, that's not up to me. Uh, and the last question is quite 
fairly easy. Do you have any social media you want to plug, a website, that sort of thing? Uh, my Facebook and, uh, and Twitter, Sketch of New York on you, uh, on Facebook, a hey, Sketch of New York on YouTube. My name, Joe Danazi on uh, Sketch of New York on Facebook, I should say. We do have a YouTube channel, but nothing on it yet. I'm trying to get things edited. Um, a Sketch of New York on Facebook. Um, my name, Joe Danazi, also on Facebook is primarily how I do. I need a better social media handle. I'm not good at these things. I just work. Um, yeah. It's, it's I can be found on Twitter as well. Joe Danazi and Dora Sketch of New York. You can find me on at least one of those things. And your Twitter things are legendary. It's like I've seen you live tweet a lot of these stuff, and it's like oh, I, I barely use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm talking about the stuff that when you uh, like when you're live tweeting about something about a uh, when you're watching something on Facebook and you just like like. Like that, that's what I think, where you're just kind of like tweeting about it at the same time. Oh, I'm so. glad it works. I try and live tweet a Christmas movie marathon every year. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, this has been episode eight. Thank you, Joe, for taking an hour of your time, probably even more. I have no idea how long this episode came out, but probably. I feel like it, it, I feel like it's me and the freedom to talk and wanted it to be an hour. You fool. Yeah. <laughs> well thanks so much for having me i appreciate yeah. it and yeah. you talked a lot a, a lot of great stuff about stage combat training especially especially the technical side and i feel like stage combat and uh, yeah i do feel like stage combat is something that isn't really talked about especially since you called it the redheaded stepchild so yeah it's like and it's like one of the, the things especially the and it's one of those things that you're kind of like wondering how it's going to be happening, Alec, once quarantine has over. And I was just about to teach a new class when the quarantine hit. <laughs> yeah. I do teach. I teach on my own as well, being a fight choreographer. All right. But thank you again. Uh, it was a great episode to talk to. I hope to have you again, like later down the line, like once like everything has like kind of like gone back to normal, that sort of thing. I like do like one of those catch up, you know, catch up episodes, that sort of thing. So yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name, as always, is Brian M. Davis. Thank you for watching, and just be safe, and yeah, be safe and wear your damn